Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire, Fire production. production. So we're back in Bliss's kitchen. So tell me a little bit about uh, your uh, days. Well, we have- By the way, we always start out sort of catching up. Yeah. That's our thing. Yeah. Um, we uh, had a beautiful birth in um, Topanga. That's probably like the highlight of my week. Um, was yeah, that's going to be the highlight of my month, probably. Aw. Yeah, you were really gushing. Oh, it's so beautiful. People- you, Tell them a little bit about it, but it's so beautiful and and you can't beat the setting. Yeah, no, I, I got there probably earlier than I needed to be, but I was like, it's so pretty. Um, Topanga is a small little mountain town here in Los Angeles. So when you go into the canyon, you feel like you're somewhere else. Yes. Don't you think? Yeah. Um, and uh, lots of trees and they have this beautiful house that's... Um, what do you call that? A geodome? Yeah, it would be like a giant yurt. <laughs> it's, it's it's like a geodome. Yeah, it's like yeah. a geodome, two stories, um, just beautiful. Just old, wood, old wood. Yeah, just trees everywhere. Mm -hmm. Sweet little dogs running around. They have a, big dogs. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it was uh, it was just you know I sat outside and had some toast in the sunshine and and she was laboring beautifully and her partner was just like fully present and loving on her deep passionate kisses. Her doula was fantastic and it was just you know it was just one of those days that I just really reminded myself to be present for every moment and soak it in. And, and it was very kind of her really to actually it. get into active labor during the daytime. And it yeah. Was, and it was beautiful outside because it gets chilly, really chilly up there right now this season. So at nighttime, you wouldn't be able to sit outside. And no, and and navigating the the, oh, roads, the roads getting up there are very narrow and um, curvy. And so uh, my assistant, Kim, who's another local midwife, said she was so happy to not have to drive up there in the dark because, um, yeah, that would, it's, it's more difficult. We get questioned about that sometimes, how, well, what if we live way away from everything or what if we, you know, what happens if, and we've talked about this before in the podcast, and this is a perfect example of trusting birth and trusting that it's really, really rare to see something go rapidly down that awful road mm -hmm. um, when you're not meddling with Mother Nature. So we give them informed consent. We talk about how maybe they want to move, go to a birth center because they're what, 40 minutes probably from a hospital up a windy road. 35. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. um, but that was never really a, a concern of ours. Know, it, it, it comes into my brain like uh if there is a complication how long like you know I probably would call something a little bit sooner than later with something like that I'd be on the yeah more conservative knowing that it was going to take them a, a little bit to get to us and then take them out of the canyon so um you know it's something that I think of but um they they had a little bit of concern about it, but they moved through it and really knew that, that that's what they wanted to do was to deliver at home. So they were originally my clients um, planning a home birth. And then at 37 weeks, we confirmed that the baby was breech. So they did some things to, uh, you know, maybe turn the baby, but they ultimately decided not to do an ECV. And um, which, which I assessed and told them that the likelihood of success is going to be pretty small. Mm -hmm. And I said that because she's a really in shape, lean, tall woman, strong abs, Frank breach, first time mom, not a ton of fluid success rate for that sort of version. Not very good. Yeah. And I, I think that was part of their decision, but also, you know, trusting that the baby was choosing how it wanted to come and they had the resources and availability to be able to use you. She talked about, you know, she had been in another place that didn't have Dr. Stu, then she wouldn't have had this option. And so she was really grateful for that. Yeah. So uh, we labored 
And then you were at your office and she started, you know, pretty quick labor for a first time mom, you know, her bag probably ruptured the day before. Um, and then she went to bed and started having contractions at 3am, um, you know, more regular contractions. And then the baby was born at four in the afternoon. So, you know, pretty good for a first time mama, but you came, I think I told you that you might be able to do your whole day. And then I was like, eh, maybe not. Cause uh, she went from a six when I first checked her, uh, Dr. Stu asked me to make sure that um, I knew what was presenting in the pelvis so that we didn't have a foot or a cord or something like that. So With I- breaches, I think that that's, mm-hmm. you know, as much as we hesitate to do vaginal exams, mm-hmm. it's sort of important yeah. to be sure because everything sort of does rely on the position of the baby and things can change. Although frank breaches very rarely change, but you could have a cord down there theoretically. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't do vaginal exams on breaches very often. So it's always interesting to be like, "Mm, what is this I'm feeling, you know, squishy little booty instead of a hard head. Um, And uh, yeah, and then within, I'd say an hour, she reported that she was feeling pushy. And um, so we we decided that it was good to call the team to come out. Right. So I got to see uh, one client in the morning who needed to be seen because she's 42 weeks and had to go through the post-dates testing thing and then, the, and then the consult regarding whether to be transferred to a doctor, doctor's care, or whether to hire me for extra money to be that bridge to allow her to continue to do her plan. And uh, we call that the Dr. Stew on the couch package, basically. And that's <laughs> where the midwife still continues to do a lot of the care, but ultimately they transfer into my care to make it legal here in California. Silliness. It is silliness. <laughs> uh, so what was your experience when you came up? Well, I have to tell you that that um, I'm always a little, every birth I go to, I have this little deep, little anxiety inside of me. Okay. Cause that's just, you know, it comes from the years of experience and having, you know, occasionally having an outcome, which isn't ideal. You know, it's not, it's not the same as post-traumatic stress, but it is, I think everybody who's done births knows what I'm talking about. Is when you've had a situation where everything's going beautifully and then doesn't come out beautifully, then every time in the future, you always have that sort of thing in the back of your mind, flicking, flicking your head a little bit in the back of your mind. But it was so beautiful. And you, I told you, Bliss, that you are a wonder, a wonder for me to watch because I could never do what you and your other and your teammates do. The patience that you have, the ability to sit and do nothing for so long, it's so hard even this far out into my career of unlearning the fact that the key for being a good practitioner is doing nothing. And it's really hard for me to do nothing. So I sit on the couch or I go outside and sit on the bench and watch, you know, listen to the birds, listen to the sky, put my headphones in. Mm -hmm. Uh, Probably I was there for about three hours just sitting around doing nothing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and then finally, I was going to make, I was going to say something about maybe getting her out of the tub. She was on squatting in the tub, sort of. And because she hadn't made a lot of progress since you said that she was completely dilated and was about a half a finger just up from the introitus. And I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe she does need coach pushing. Maybe she needs to turn on her back. And, and then suddenly you just told me that, well, we're getting out of the tub. And I come and look and the baby's butt sticking out a little bit. It's still doing that rumping and retreating thing, rumping, retreating, rumping. And but retreating. not for long. No, but not, mm-hmm. you know, this classic, the classic primate breach and the baby, but just watching you, the, the, the calmness that you project to the family makes all the difference in the world. So I'm, I'm in awe of, of bliss when she's doing her thing because, Aww. you know, first of all, she doesn't say much at all. And when she does, she talks in a voice that, is so calm and reassuring. And I have this booming, booming voice, even when I whisper, it's really loud. <laughs> so, I have a loud whisper. I do. I have a loud whisper too. So I, uh, it's hard for me, but it was really great to just come in there and just look and then go back out and do nothing and just let them know that I was here. Gave like a wink to the husband and he waved at me and he knew that I was in the house. And that was the end of that. That's the my extent of my care until until we got to a point where she was on her hands and knees on the bed, she got out of the water, which mm-hmm. is my, my preference is for a primate breach to be on land just because we use gravity 
in the all fours position. And when they're in the water, sometimes you lose the benefit of gravity because the baby floats upwards. So interestingly enough, this week, a midwife posted about a breach water birth in another part of the country. And I asked her about that and she had a difference in opinion. And so I think in a future podcast, I'm going to ask her to come on and just kind of talk through her experience with breaches would be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But so she was on the bed. We were, we were rumping. We were more than rumping. Yeah. <laughs> and then? And then we were baby labying, if you can say that word. Yeah. They didn't know what the baby was, the gender. And so. The dad came down. And so, look. yeah, I saw it coming out and it wasn't a ball sack. So I knew it was a little labia. I was very excited for them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then the baby did all the right maneuvers. Yes, baby. It was did. classic. It came out right sacrum transverse and immediately began to rotate to right sacrum anterior. And then by the time it got to the legs beginning to come out uh, where the thighs were, it was almost directly sacrum anterior, mm-hmm. which would mean tum to bum mm-hmm. for the baby. So the baby's tummy is towards the mom's bottom. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You're right. And then she pushed. Now, just before we got to that point, the last time we listened to the heart rate. We couldn't really hear it. Yeah. And before that, we heard a little bit of a D-cell too. Not too much though. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. But we couldn't find the heart rate. So we were going to judge the baby based on the criteria that I often use, which is capillary feeling, tone, um, that sort of thing, I guess. Yeah. Right. Mostly tone. Color, a little bit of color. And color, yeah. Mm-hmm. Capillary filling, tone, and color. I knew there was a third one that I couldn't remember <laughs> what it was. Um, and the baby came out, and you know, it was normal, palish color of babies are, but it was it was trying to help itself out. So it was doing its tummy scrunches and a little bit. Yep. Mm-hmm. It did about three of them. Mm-hmm. And it got to the point where at the umbilicus, and you know, I wasn't even worried about the timing there because she was progressing so well. But we but Sean Walker and a few other people have thought that. From the time the baby hits the umbilicus, the baby's head should be out within three to five minutes. And that's I've said many times on the podcast, three to five minutes when you're waiting in that position seems like an eternity. <laughs> so it's like, wow, this is really long. But at that point, when you get that far along, the baby's really no longer in the mother's uterus. So you really don't have to wait for a contraction. Yeah. So you started they asking just her to push. push mm-hmm. Right. And part of it was because we were a little, I was a little concerned about the baby's tone and that sort of thing. So when the legs came out, initially there was, they, they just gently popped out. Plop, oh plop, yeah, right? legs did great. And uh, we did a little bit of perineal protection. Just you put mm-hmm. your hand gently there. You had a warm uh, compress there that you were warm, keeping it on there. And and um, initially the baby was had some tone and was trying to help itself out. But then over the next minute or two, it sort of lost its tone. It got real floppy. And it got to the point where you could start to see the the uh, the chest coming out. You could see the beautiful cleavage of the where the cord ran right up the middle. You knew the baby was in perfect position. You knew the arms were in front of the head. We have her get a grip push, and it just didn't really come that easily. And we were, I was getting a little concerned, so I just took one finger up and I flipped the baby's left arm down, and the right arm came out on its own essentially after the left arm fell out. And then we did a little shoulder press, and out came the baby. Yeah, out came the baby, and she was indeed. A little floppy, but um, she just needed um, a little bit of stimulation. She didn't need any breaths. We took the minute and had the um, mom and dad welcome her. Um, and you could see the pink starting to come into her her face a little bit in patches. And then I knew, I think you at that point um, took a Stethoscope. heart rate yeah. um, and said it was above well, 100. Well over 100. Yeah. yeah. So we... Uh, had a great delivery. We did nothing. We sat, <laughs> we sat we there. We sat nothing. there and we <laughs> let the baby come around and the baby's eyes were open and the parents were talking to the baby. It was one of those just beautiful, beautiful moments. And and she took a moment, all right, when the baby came out, we put it between her legs. She she took the moment that a lot, a lot of women do, just like, oh my God. And then she looked down at her baby and uh he was all teary-eyed, <laughs> and uh, then we had her roll over and put the baby on its side, right next to her, and and they had their moments. And and um, while she was on her side, I took asked for permission to take a quick look at her bottom, and she had no tears. So here's Yay! a primate with a turned out to be eight pound thirteen ounce mm-hmm. breech long, baby, twenty two inches, twenty two inches long, long baby, no tear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Yay, good team. Right. <laughs> Anything right. else? And really grateful parent. I mean, he was oh, so I know. loving. Pushing and just 
so lovely, lovely, lovely. Yeah. And I, you know, do I, do I feel, I have so many feelings when I, when a birth like that happens, part of me, it's just, it's the wonder of the, and the beauty of what happens. And part of me is the anger and frustration when I know that just about anywhere else in, in my country, she would have had a section. She delivered on her due date. So she would, the baby would have been a week old already. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, all of that beauty would have just been missed. So again, thank you for what you do. It's going to be interesting to be in an area where I can't utilize your amazing services. And I'm going to be missing your services because when I, when I'm working with you, I, I, I know that I'm good. Mm. I know that if you need me, you'll get me. And if you don't need me, you'll leave me alone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We actually had a delivery. Do you remember that one way back when, uh, that she didn't want you in the room because she was a Orthodox oh, yeah, Jewish sure. woman. So yeah. she had you there because it made her husband feel more comfortable, but honestly, she didn't really want a man in the room. And so you just slept. I woke you up after the baby came out. I was like, let him sleep. <laughs> I have a great job. You know, I get paid for sleeping on people's couches. No. Makes them feel comfortable. So yeah, so that that's the kind of birth that makes me want to continue to what I'm doing. Yeah, good. We you need know. notes. Yeah, yeah. It also it also leaves me with the feeling that being the only one out here doing it, that it's going to eventually lead to someone in some administrative role saying, well, if there's only one person doing it, it must be wrong. Yeah, but just got to be in the moment until that happens. Until it right? happens, right? I mean, so much, so gotta, much joy. You got to, yeah, you have to, you have to have an alternative plan, which I'm working on. Yeah. I think, I think I'm going to read this now because it's a great time to talk about acknowledgements and what a great job. So this is do. about your, this is what segment are we talking about now? This is um, midwife wisdom. But what I've decided to do is just read a thank you note that came to Dr. Stew from one of his reach clients. And it just seems like a perfect segue. So it says to those who made our dream come true, and it has lovely photos of the family. Um, we've been struggling to put into words exactly what this entire experience has meant to us. And although it will never be enough to capture how we really feel, we wanted to say more than thank you. We wanted to tell you that you have changed, that you have forever changed us. The pathway to parenthood is a strange thing. There are countless avenues through which it can be achieved and no two journeys in the history of our existence has ever or could ever be the same. Some are fortunate enough to have smooth. Um, some are fortunate enough to have smooth sailing, not an issue here or there, aside from perhaps a little fatigue and butterflies. Others, however, are luckier while they meet challenges. They the cards dealt offer far more than the stress or fear they may may initially cause. They create a new person, a better, stronger, braver, and they can. Uh, sorry, these the formatting is so close. Um, stronger, braver, and more passionate one. One that isn't afraid and becomes empowered to fight for the things that they believe in and didn't even know that they would come to believe in. Each member of our incredible birth team, including you, helped give that to us. You held our hands and showed us love, support, tenderness, and above all, faith. Your faith in our journey and the life of our little ones right to get here naturally and safely made our delivery a reality that for some time seemed impossible. We will, we will never be able to fully relay our gratitude, but we do hope that with every hard day you have, here you go, that you can think of us and know that until the day we leave this earth, we will be grateful for the ways in which you let us take part in this magnificent human experience. I think we feel that way too, that we get to take part in the magnificent experience. While every birth is beautiful, so often plans change and hearts are broken. The loving care you provided for us not only let us see our dream come to fruition, but to somehow surpass it. Not a day, an hour even goes by where we are not remembering how lucky we were and how strong we feel today because of the loving care you gave us. We hope that you can remember us fondly, even to just a fraction of the degree of how we remember you. 
We do not plan on losing touch and please extend a call to us if you ever need your friends. Can I say their names? Sure. We love you always, Brad, Sarah, and baby Jack. I mean, come on. That is so beautiful. And this, these are the moments and the opportunities that make us know that we're in the right path. Takes an extraordinary person to be able to sit down and write something like that. So, because, so heartfelt and beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Because most people move on. They, they just, well, thank you. Mm-hmm. You know, we paid you. <laughs> yeah, we paid you for this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. But to to actually sit down and compose something as beautiful as that, um, wow. I mean, how many people in their lifetime will ever get a letter that's something like that? Yeah, and and you now have clients that have become friends that you can reach out to, which is yeah, amazing. they live. Yeah, she's a she's a forest ranger or something. She lives up in Yehovahsville, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Were they far far from a a hospital too? No, because they came to a birth center. Which sometimes is a good solution um, if you're... Yeah, because they lived up far. They lived up up in an area that had a hospital that no one ever wants to go to. Uh, Yeah, that's another reason, the the transport situation. So there's some wisdom there. There's some um, uh, witch's wisdom in that. Oh, I mean, yeah, but, you know, part of what midwifery is, is, is mind, body, spirit. And this encompasses, you know, the, the love and beauty that can come from this experience. So we were going to tell, we, we told you last time that we were going to tell you about how we got here. Your path, I mean, was not the traditional path that a person would take to become a midwife. And mine was clearly an oddball thing. <laughs> yeah, let's hear from you first since I just read that. Well, my story begins, uh, let's see, it begins on July 21st, 1956, <laughs> like four something in the afternoon. No, <laughs> <laughs> We only have 10 minutes. <laughs> but my mom has no memory of it because she had ether and I was pulled out with forceps, which is how mm-hmm. I was, which has nothing to do with the story whatsoever. Because mm-hmm. it never even occurred to me that I would be going into medicine or specifically obstetrics through all my childhood, but I was in college, um, third year of college. I was a, I was a bio, a biological science major and I didn't really know what to do with that. You didn't know what you wanted to do. No, didn't know what I wanted to mm-hmm. do, but I had a Jewish mother. So that limited my choice. <laughs> <laughs> and so medical school seemed like a reasonable thing to do because they had a lot of the same prerequisites that I already taken like physics and biochem and you know, organic chemistry and all the things that scare, scare people away from becoming physicians. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I got into medical school at the University of Minnesota, which was my home state. And uh, during my four years of medical school, I began to do different rotations in the third and fourth year. You spend six weeks here, four weeks here, ear, nose and throat, internal medicine, pediatrics, OB, oncology, whatever. And um, my third year, I spent uh, six weeks on a hematology oncology service, where it was really depressing for me. We lost a lot of, uh, it was mostly a pediatric service. So we had kids dying, mm-hmm. getting pumped with chemotherapy and something called amphotericin, which was for a, like fungal infections of your brain. It was just, it was awful. So my next rotation was OB. And instead of being up at three o'clock in the morning, doing um, sad things, I was up at three in the clock in the morning doing the great things and catching a baby as, as a medical student was fine because I really wasn't responsible for anything. <laughs> I just had to catch, just had to be there to catch the baby. I still remember the first baby I ever delivered as a, as a, as a, as a medical student. Her name was Deborah Smith. It was 1981. So the baby would be what? 40 years old now. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. No, yeah. 40 years mm-hmm. old. Uh, anyway, so <laughs> I, I, I chose that as my profession and, and then I applied to the match and the match actually just came out this week. Interesting enough, my cousin just texted me this morning saying that she matched in Columbus, Ohio. And, and another student that was out here with me, you might have met her, um, she matched in Pittsburgh. So it's kind of fun. It's just all happened this week. But I matched in Southern California at Cedars-Sinai and my life will, will never be the same because instead of matching in Iowa or Colorado or wherever else I applied, I ended up in Southern California. And that led me on my path to go through residency. And fortunately, as a resident, maybe you've heard this before, I got to spend four months of my CEDARS training at LA County USC, which in the early 80s was the busiest hospital in the country, doing over 20,000 births a year, which comes out to be about 65 a day. So if you, you know, 
I got trained and we were seeing two or three breaches a day. That's amazing. And we were seeing, you know, twins and we were seeing preterm labor and we had, it was, it was sort of assembly line medicine. I mean, people had came in and we didn't know their dates because they hadn't had any prenatal care and the baby estimated fetal weight was over 2000 grams. We just pitted them out and we pitted them out because that means put them into labor because we wanted to get the beds free because there were, I think there were 16, let's see, were there 16 rooms? No, there were four, only there were four labor rooms with four beds each. So each labor room had four women laboring at the same time. Wow. Right. With curtains. Mm -hmm. Those soundproof curtain things. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> and uh, so that was six, so that was four times four rooms, six rooms. I don't know. There were 16 or 24 beds for people to labor in. And so we had to move it up. We had to move. We used to have people laboring in the hallway. Anyway, to put it mildly, it gave me good training. It wasn't great prenatal care. It wasn't great maternity care, but we got great training. And I learned forceps. I learned all the things that make me feel like a real obstetrician. But I, but I also was trained in the medical model of obstetrics. And so I came out of residency thinking that I knew everything about there was, that I knew everything about childbirth. When in hindsight, I probably knew really good stuff about 20% of laboring women and the other 80% I knew nothing about because they're normal and there's nothing wrong with them. And we didn't learn about how to deal with people who have nothing wrong with them because everyone got treated the same. And I was one of those doctors and I came out and I was really good. I was a chief resident uh, my senior year, my fourth year as a resident at Cedars. And uh, I started a practice. I got a really good practice offer right in Century City. And I joined the practice. So I took a few months off, which was great. And I traveled around the world, uh, which was a life-changing event for me as well. I read an interesting book, which changed my life as well. I've talked about that a little bit. It's called Atlas Shrugged. Oh, yeah. And, I haven't read uh, that one yet. Yeah, well, we're 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 experiencing it right now in mm -hmm. the United States. I don't need to read didn't it. Ta didn't take very long. Um, I mean, she wrote all this in 1957 because she had seen it in the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. and now we're sort of seeing it here. But that's another story. <laughs> uh, so then I then I started practice, and, I, and in order to build a practice in those days, you didn't come out and get a salary like you might nowadays going to work for Kaiser or working for an HMO or, or another group where they paid you a salary and you work a shift. No, we built a practice by hanging up our shingle kind of feeding off of our partners who were busier. And so we would assist them in surgery. We'd cover them, but we also, we covered, I covered free clinics. I covered ERs. I was working at five different hospitals at one time. And so I built my practice up and I began to see things a different way because I was approached by midwives and asked to be their backup physician. In other words, take their transports. And as I've said many times, I didn't do it because I thought midwifery was a good idea. As a matter of fact, I thought home birth was stupid, right? Like everybody else. I did it because I was trying to make money. Mm -hmm. And if it had been a different system back then, and I had been on a salary or my partners had said, no, you're not allowed to back up a midwife, I would have been just like every other doctor that's existing now. Mm -hmm. I would have never learned the things that I needed to learn from working with midwives and watching them. And you, and then you came into the picture sort of with the sanctuary. And I, prior to that, I had started a collaborative midwifery practice in Ventura County where we had hospital privileges. With, I worked with two, eventually three CNMs, eventually another doctor was in our group. But we were never well accepted there. And we were constantly being bombarded with what we would call gaslighting or gunny sacking, uh, being told that the things we we're doing were, were wrong or crazy, yet our outcomes were better than theirs. Our C-section rates were lower. Our patient satisfaction was higher. But we made the anesthesiologist nervous. We made the pediatricians nervous. We made the nurses nervous because the nurses had only known the highly medicalized model of care, and we were doing something different. And I was doing breaches, and I was doing twins, and we were doing VBACs, and we were doing these things without epidurals. And there was a lots of forces that were going against what we were doing. And from the very first day that we came to that community, they were trying to get us out of there. And after 15 years, they figured out a way to do it. Right? Well, you had 15 years. And huh? the way to do it was not to renew my privileges. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because I was just listening to our lovely uh, colleague, Nathan Riley's podcast, the OB Gyno Wino podcast, where he interviewed my kindred spirit, Brad Boots Taylor, who is a maternal fetal medicine OB in Atlanta. And he tells the story and everything that's coming out of his mouth is like, well, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. It's exactly what happened. He called, he called it um, uh, death by a thousand cuts, but I would call it essentially gaslighting or gunny sacking where they're pig piling on you. They're, they're peer reviewing you for things like, oh, you let somebody with ruptured membranes go home because she wasn't yet in labor. The outcome was fine. Mm -hmm. And there's plenty of data that suggests you can leave someone 
ruptured for up to two, three, four days. And there's still support for that in the literature. Mm -hmm. It didn't matter. It made people obviously at his hospital uncomfortable. And they had some sort of safety committee that eventually decided not to kick him off staff, not to bring him up on this or, or accuse him of anything, just quietly not renew his privileges. And that's exactly what they did to me. And I think that there are other doctors around who even <laughs> try to rock the boat. That's exactly what they do to them mm -hmm. because it, it protects them illegally. It's hard to challenge them not renewing your privileges. So they were not going to renew my privileges. So I had a choice of either fighting them, which is futile generally. Yeah. He thought about it for a little bit. They're, well, because uh, I don't like being treated unfairly. Yeah. And I don't respect authority that's not deserving of respect. Mm -hmm. And these people had, I know this sounds really arrogant, but they couldn't hold a candle to the abilities that I had. And they're telling me how I'm supposed to practice. Yeah. Right. But I had smart people around me who said, don't do it because you're going to lose or it's going to cost you a fortune. And all you're going to do is win the right to stay at the hospital where they're going to just pick on you anyway. Yeah. Hostile work environment. So I came to, I went to some home births and I went reluctantly. I've told you that before, but I wasn't really comfortable going. But fortunately, the first five or 10 that I went to were unbelievable. Sort of like the one you described mm -hmm. today yeah. with, with the, in the canyon. Mm -hmm. um, head down ones, of course. I wasn't doing breaches yet at home, but but um, they all went beautifully. And so I borrowed paperwork from the midwives and I just adjusted it. I had a lawyer review stuff, uh, made a, my, my consent form, my arbitration form, all that stuff. Just applied it to a physician instead of a midwife. And I've been doing the same thing ever since. And that's sort of how I came to what I'm doing. And I, it turns out that you take something as upsetting and as frustrating as being not appreciated and being not renewed for staff and how, how scared and frustrated you were at the time and realized that it was one of the best things that could have ever happened to you because it, it changed the whole course of my life. And I've made lemonade from those lemons. I remember when, when we first started working together at the sanctuary and you would just be like, I just feel so good when I come here. Like it's such a different experience than when I used to go into my office, like into the hospital. Or even in my yeah. own office. When, yeah. yeah. When I came to the sanctuary, mm -hmm. it was the, just, uh, it was like, <laughs> <sighs> it was just breathing. You could breathe and you could sense they're just the, the, the model and the tension. And yeah, it's been the greatest, it's been the greatest thing. And I think that, you know, for the 400 or so families that I've delivered outside of the hospital and for maybe the 500 and some families that I've touched before, those, some that had to be transferred out of care, they all felt respected. They've all had, you know, they all haven't had great, perfect outcomes, but they've all been really, really happy with their, with their care that they've been given. And I can't say that that was the case when I was practicing in the hospital. I was the same guy but I didn't, I was practicing within a model that didn't allow me to do the things that I, that I, that I should be doing and how to respect autonomy. And as Brad Boots Taylor says, shared decision-making and being able to give people information and, and respect that their decision might not be the same one that another couple might make and not having to treat everybody by an algorithm or by the hospital's model of how, how obstetric should be cared for. Because the hospital doesn't have my interests or the patient's interest at heart. That's not their priority. Their priority is to get through the day and get babies in the bassinet, move on. Like it was when I was a resident. Yeah, and I think the other thing is you are, this model helps you develop a relationship with the families and be more, more yourself and more connected to them. And that inevitably has, pe has people more satisfied with the experience where in the medical model, you're kind of taught to be a little bit more distant and, you know. Um, right. And now the shift mentality, the shift mentality of current medical practice makes it even, even less satisfying. And again, if all you are is a mechanic, like if I was, if I was a mechanical type person, I would have gone into emergency medicine or maybe pathology or maybe radiology. So that you diagnose something, but you really don't have to interact too much with the person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that wasn't who I was. So I really liked interacting with, with my clients. But then in the medical model, when you have to do volume because you're paid poorly right. by insurance companies and your overhead is high, you don't have the time to do that. And so you cut things short. You cut corners. You've got one foot in the door 
or out the door, excuse me, mm-hmm. when you're trying to talk to somebody and they want to go off on a tangent about something and you know that you've got three more people in the waiting room. You're like, I gotta go. Right, <laughs> gotta go. Now we don't have to do that. And I remember too, when we, we first started doing prenatals together at the sanctuary, you're like, so what do you talk about for an hour? <laughs> like, I don't know what-, what we Well, I still, that, I, still, I still have that issue. But, but it's led me, pretty good. it's led me to the path of things that I never thought I would do, like writing papers or writing a book or going on the lecture t- tour of teaching breach, buying a breach trainer, going to teach breach. These things never would have happened if I had a busy office, hospital-based practice. I never would have had time for any of that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. Love it. Love it. So love that's it. sort of how I got here. And, uh, and I've been doing the podcast. I just briefly podcast was mm-hmm. the brainchild of a of my old friend Brian Whitman who he's a talk show host here in Southern California he's on drive time morning radio on 870 KRLA and um I had met him through his girlfriend at the time years and years ago and we had just hit it off he had that kind of voice and that sense of humor that I really liked and he liked my sense of humor and so occasionally we now and then we'd meet for uh, breakfast after his morning show from which was from six to nine or five to nine in the morning and I'd meet him at a, a little deli that was right near the studio. And we would chat, we would meet and we would have conversations. And one time I was just going on a little rant about something that was happening in the world. He says, Stu, he says, we gotta do a podcast. And this was nine, This was uh, eight years ago, so it was 2013. So it was a little, you know, a podcast had just gotten started, so mm-hmm. to speak, and you gotta do a podcast. And if without Brian, this never, my podcast never would have happened. And then you and I would never be doing this. Yeah. I went to a meeting with him in the beginning and you asked if we at the sanctuary wanted to do a podcast and we were so busy and I couldn't like see the vision of doing a podcast back then. And so you, you ran with it. Yeah. And and then years later, you asked me to come. I think you just wanted to come, me to come because you and another co-host that you had for a little bit, Kim, um, were not working together and you hadn't had anybody with you for months and you wanted to start to record again. So you're like, you got yeah, to record I try, a podcast I, I actually me? tried out a few different people. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh. I did. And uh, you stuck. <laughs> yeah. Stick like glue. Right. So I think you, you probably have more podcasts than anybody, maybe except Ryan. I'm not sure. How many have you done? Did you remember? You counted them up on I time. did, and now I forgot. Oh. Well, you can go to drstewspodcast.com. They're all they're all archived there. We're still... Well, it'll be in the podcast. Yeah, but it'll be in the podcast app, and you can go back, and you should listen to a couple. We came up with really clever titles. Yeah, you're really good at that. We did. <laughs> I, I, well, yeah, even, <laughs> even then, but they were really, we came up with really clever titles of current events or things of the day. One of my favorites was the, what, Kung Pao Placenta? Because <laughs> everyone, everyone who does a birth podcast always does a podcast somewhere along the line about eating the placenta. Mm-hmm. So our, but I just didn't want to call it like eating the placenta. So I, <laughs> we came up with Kung Pao Placenta. We had a whole bunch of other ones. But so if you, if again, you're like, you don't have enough time in your day to do other stuff. But if you do, you can go back and listen to some of our archives. I know people do that. Okay. So that's my to- story. What's your story? What's my story? Um, well, I watched my sister deliver my niece um, at a birth center. Actually, it was in Culver City. I was 13 years old. And um, I watched her labor. And I sat at the foot of the bed and watched my niece come through the pelvis. And it was the most miraculous thing I'd ever seen. The molding of the head and the whole... I just thought it was incredible. The how old were you then? 13. 13. Okay. But I did not want to be a midwife. Um, that was not like, it wasn't like, oh, and then I knew I wanted to be a midwife, but I did think it was just an incredible thing. And then, you know, years later, I became pregnant myself and um, did what most people do. They check their insurance and they go to the doctor that's on their insurance plan. And I didn't really think much about it. And then halfway through my pregnancy, I was like, wait a minute. Why, where are the midwives? Like, when does that happen? When do I like get that as an option? And, uh, you know, I was 20, I was young and I was a single mom. And I just knew that I wanted to see what was, what else was available out there. So I, you know, dating myself, but I looked up um, birth centers in the yellow pages and I found Tanya Brooks birth center, which was in Glendale. This was before licensure in California right around the time that it was starting to happen. And um, I switched care into the midwife's care and, um, and loved it. I just loved the, you know, it was like a very comfortable environment and um, very loving and supportive. And I ended up 
um, having a very long first labor and transported from the birth center to a hospital and um, worked with Dr. Wu, uh, who supported a lot of um, midwives here in California and just recently retired. And I had- um, and, and passed away. And passed away. Right. Mm-hmm. And I had uh, a forcep delivery, episiotomy, epidural, separated from my baby, had all these experiences that I didn't necessarily um, expect that I was going to have. And now working with you, I know that you could have just come to the birth center and helped me get that baby out, helped me get Jordan out at the birth center because I had pushed for a long time and I just couldn't quite manage it. Yeah, but there was nobody. No, there was nobody who would do that. Would but do that, now right. I'm like, darn, that would have been nice to have a stew around. Um, so uh my midwife had told me that my pelvis was abnormal and I probably never would be able to deliver outside of the hospital. And so I kind of went for the next eight years believing that something was wrong with my body. And I met another midwife and shared my story with her. And she said, you have a tried pelvis, which basically means that the baby has passed through, even though I did have assistance and you deserve a trial of labor. And so I went into that delivery with my daughter, Sky. Um, thinking I probably was still going to get transported, but I was going to give it a shot. And I had an incredibly triumphant, beautiful delivery in front of the Christmas tree. I love when you add the Christmas tree story. Oh, because I can just visualize it um, on a birth stool. Um, And she came out in about uh, 20 minutes of pushing. And it was just, I mean, I still can envision the pictures of me holding her and just my face was just elated. And I fell in love with midwifery during that time. I really just felt like I was so held and supported. Um, I had actually done co-care because of the transport situation with a doctor who was very lovely. He was willing to back um, my midwives, which a lot of doctors aren't willing to do, but he wanted to see me at the same time. And so watching how my care was managed in these two different worlds for the exact same pregnancy was very eye-opening for me. Never talked about nutrition, never talked about how I was feeling emotionally. Nice guy, you know, but it's just a different model. And um, those midwives really taught me more than just how to deliver. They taught me about how to care for myself naturally. And I learned so much about nutrition and herbs and all of that. And I just became an advocate and I really wanted people to know, not have to look it up and search for it, but to know that midwives were out there and what a difference that that kind of care can make in your life, not just for the delivery. Um, and then, uh, I had another baby grant who's now going to be 18. (laughs) can't believe it. Um, with that same practice, the Hollywood birth center, Connie rock and Ty Carson, um, Alex Evangeliti, who eventually became my partner in the sanctuary was a student at the time and was at grants delivery as a student. And, um, I, I did a trade with them because we didn't have a lot of money back then. And so we did things like paint the birth center and I did administrative work for them. And, the Hollywood birth center closed down after Grant's delivery and not because of it though, right? No, <laughs> no, <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> um, no, it just, you know, but birth centers open and close. We know that like what makes you a good midwife doesn't necessarily make you a good, um, business, business owner. Right. So that closed down. And then Alex and Connie became partners and they called me up and said, this was a few years later and said, uh, we want you to come and be our business manager. And I said, only if we open a birth center, cause there were no birth centers open at the time in LA, which seems totally crazy. And, um, so we partnered up and opened the sanctuary. That was 2006. We were a home birth practice. And then by 2010, we had the whole thing open, which was, um, a birth center, beautiful birth center, um, a wisdom and movement like yoga and educational center, an eco boutique. And then we did a, a collaboration. So we had five midwives at one time, Dr. Fishbein would come in and do his work and, um, do ultrasounds. We had, uh, uh, lactation consultants and doulas and hypnotherapy and acupuncture and chiropractor. And it was, it was pretty cool place, right? Created mm-hmm. a bunch of community. It was pretty awesome. But, it was, and we had, yeah, it was just, it was a nice center to come to for wellness. Yeah. Right. Um, but I started to get really 
dissatisfied because I think I had thought that I would open the center and then move on to other things. I think at that point I thought I was going to be like a motivational speaker or something. And um, every time I tried to step away, the business just didn't do as well. And I really didn't see myself doing business um, for my whole life. And I started to also get frustrated because I felt like the the group practice um, started to become more medicalized and not as individualized and um, have the heart of like what you were acknowledging me for earlier in the birth room all the time. And so I was signing these people up for an experience that I wanted to give them. And then I wasn't able to give it to them. And I did get some pushback from some of the midwives and said, you know, you're not a midwife. You don't understand. Things are really different now. And so I was like, well, I guess I should go get my license because I have this business and I should be able to have a say in how the clients are cared for. Um, and so I, I started on my journey to become a midwife and, um, and it became difficult to kind of live in both worlds of owning the sanctuary and, and, you know, I, Dr. Fishbein was one of my preceptors. And so I had two preceptors and I was going to school in San Diego and, um, trying to be a, you know, being a mom, single mom, and it was just so too much. So we closed, we'd made the decision to close the sanctuary together in 2015. Um, and that was the best decision I think personally that I could have made for myself because my quality of life, um, just in being a small home birth practice is, I love it. I love it so much. And, um, yeah, I get to just have the autonomy of working with my clients and making decisions. Um, like you were saying earlier about, you know, sometimes somebody can be ruptured for three days and I didn't want another person who felt nervous about that to make that decision for my client. I wanted to be able to have that kind of individualized, um, informed consent kind of care that I think you can only have when you have either a single practitioner or you have two midwives that are that practice very similarly it's like a marriage yeah so yeah and then i don't know a couple of years ago you asked me to to join you on the podcast and we have just been trucking along yeah well you know what Bliss, you are a motiv- you, you said you wanted to be a motivational speaker i did at one point you, you are a motivational speaker you, you're just not getting paid for it <laughs> <laughs> but no, you are. I and mean, when people listen to you, whether it's your clients on a one-to-one or whether it's on the podcast or whether it's, uh, you know, at a group meeting or something like that, you, you are a motivational speaker. Well, You'd be really good at it. Um, you have a way of speaking that is honest and makes people listen and not, not get anxious or fearful. Uh, or want to, or or resentful in any any way. You you have you you're very good. You have very great people skills. Aww. So you would be really good at that. But then the birth world. So the problem is, is every time we want to do something bigger, that the birth world's going to lose a, a birth person because you can't really do everything. I've thought about well, where will I? What's my next phase? Will I be? Te- will I do teaching? Will I do this? Because I know that I can't continue to be on call twenty four seven. Yeah. You know, people know how old I am now. I said my birthday, so I'm going to be 65 this year. And that's not old. I don't feel old physically, but I have lots of things I still want to do. Yeah. And I'm sort of, this year with the pandemic and the lack of traveling, has had its disadvantages for most people, including myself, but it's also had a little bit of an advantage because it strung me out another year because I was already thinking last year that I was probably going to be leaving. Right. But, you know, it's really hard right now to to think about where to go, or what the future is when you don't really know what the future is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that if I was going to do things over again, I would have gone, instead of going to Najoni, I would have gone to Vestier and did what Molly Jarko did. It's one of the midwives locally. She became a naturopath and a midwife at the same time. And it's only an additional year because not only can you treat the whole family, um, but you also, when you're done attending births, you could you could just be a naturopath. Yeah, best year, best year was far more expensive than the zone, though, because yeah. I know, and my our friend Molly has had a lot of uh, student loan debt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so. you got to work that off. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that's how we got here. Right. So our past began first across, I guess, right, what around sanctuary? 2010, the opening of the birth center is yeah. when I first remember actually meeting. You, you, you had that person. open house at the birth center. I still remember that. Mm-hmm. I have some pictures of that. Yeah, we I have a picture. I should put it up on our on our Facebook. You should. Yeah. 
I think I had dark hair then. You probably did. <laughs> and, and a smaller forehead. Yeah. Did you have a letter you wanted to read before we end today? Well, yeah, we did. I have a couple things. Um, now, when I talk about the dumb doctor dogma segment, it isn't always dumb doctors and it isn't always, it could be dumb nurses, it could be dumb hospitals. It just, the, the alliteration sounded good. So I, <laughs> I'm using it, but, but it's not, not common sense. Right. But here's one. Um, and this ties briefly, it ties into a post that you put up on Instagram this past week, which mm -hmm. maybe you could mention briefly where you showed one of your clients who I happened to be there too, because I think she was over 42 weeks. Yeah. Um, so it was Dr. Stu on the, on the camera. <laughs> yeah. Dr. Stu on the camera uh, uh, package. Um, so I, cause I took the picture and you gave me credit for it, which was really nice at the bottom. Really nice of you. Yeah. Um, but okay. you talked about positions. She was on her back in the tub. And mm -hmm. so you asked people to write in about well, what positions do you do? What, what, and you got a lot of really good positive feedback. A lot of people said, yeah, I preferred being on my back. I, yeah. I thought of being on my back, but, but that's the choice that they made. That's not a choice that they were forced into. Correct. Do you want to say anything more about that post or is yeah, I mean, yeah, I think, yeah, I said, you know, uh, delivering on your back, you're probably going to think that I'm going to have some really negative thing to say about it, but it really is about whatever position you feel most powerful. And this mom picked that position and she never moved. And she even was pulling her legs all the way back the way that, you know, a lot of times you'd be guided and it was instinctual for her and she made great progress. So there was no reason to recommend anything else, right. you know, following her instincts. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> By the way, at birthing bliss is her Instagram uh, handle and at birthing instincts is mine. That's right. Okay. So um, I'm, I'm, I might be having difficulty with her first name, but I'll say it's Zayla and Zayla writes um, that her subject is 34 weeks, five days breech baby attempting VBAC. Mm -hmm. And she writes, I have educated myself for years on the medicalization of birth. I, I love her already. <laughs> I sought out a CNM for my first birth. However, I, when I went past 42 and a half weeks, I was told I needed to induce in the hospital. My CNM was not there and had scheduled the trip abroad, thinking I would have given birth by that time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, you can't. Yeah. You, you have to plan your life. Mm -hmm. I was in labor for nearly 50 hours before I fully dilated to 10 centimeters. After that, exhaustedly pushing for quite some time, uh, I kept feeling movement when I was on my hands and knees, but the hospital staff kept forcing me on my back. Mm -hmm. Okay. So frustrating. So she watch. felt the baby was descending more when she was on her hands and knees. The hospital made her go on her back. That's dumb Dr. Dogma number one. Yes. Here comes number two. Number okay. two. <laughs> Where I would feel all movement and progress stop. Mm. After about 24 hours, a nurse pressured me to get a C-section by stating, even if you get the head out, his shoulders could get stuck if he's really big and we'll have to push him back inside you and he'll ride the short bus for the rest of his life. Oh my God. Oh my God. That's horrible. Yeah, that maybe gets into the super dumb doctor dogma. Super dumb. Wow. Can you believe that? I'm so sorry. And, and she puts that in quotes. So I believe that that's actually what was said to her. Oh, that's horrible. Right? Yeah. So I, I just. And I, insensitive. Like just in general, it's just an insensitive thing to say, but okay. Right. And as if, as if, first of all, you can predict a shoulder dystocia. And if second of all, you can't manage a shoulder dystocia, that you'd have to do a Zeffinelli maneuver, which is where you push the head back up inside and then do a C section. I mean, what was this nurse talking about? Okay. It was at this point I broke down crying and traumatically agreed to a C-section, which still gives me internal pain at the edge of the incision scars this day, six and a half years later. I'm so sorry. Right. Yeah. My CNN was quite good, though. She wasn't there at the end, so I decided to return, although though she wasn't there at the end. Mm -hmm. So I decided to return to her for my second pregnancy. I am currently 34 weeks, five days, and everything thus far has been normal in my pregnancy other than a slightly high AFI hovering around 20. Two things about that. First of all, 20 is normal. Mm -hmm. And secondly, why do they even know? I always ask that question. Why at 34 weeks do we know her fluid is 20? Why did she have an ultrasound? Yeah, lots right. of them. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Last week, I was told the baby was head down. To be safe, I was told to have NSTs and, and AFIs. And yesterday during the AFI, I was told baby was breech. Okay. To be safe. Wait, I forgot to highlight that. And 
dumb Dr. Dogma color too. Okay. Why are they going to do NSTs at 34 weeks? Because she's a VBAC. Or is it because your fluid was normal? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, yeah, I, I don't understand. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. This, but this is her. This is, I don't know if the CNM is saying this or if this is the maternal fetal medicine person she referred to, but somebody is telling her that she should have weekly NSTs. And I don't know if it's weekly. I shouldn't say that. I was told to have NSTs and AFIs. And yesterday during the AFI, I was told the baby was breech. Now my CNM is saying that unless the baby turns, I cannot have a trial of labor or attempt a VBAC. More specifically, she said she cannot do a breach or VBAC breach. Well, that's probably true. She's in California. So mm -hmm. that's true. I am thus considering giving birth at home, but I do not want to do so without a care professional there. Having an OB would be optimal. I am thus requesting a consultation to find out your expert opinion on the situation. And if you might be willing to be my provider, no, I won't be your provider. I'll be your practitioner. Okay. Provider is one of those words that I've you often said, like. I, I don't like mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Provider came from the insurance industry when they wanted to break down the doctor-patient relationship. They used to have a book of practicing physicians that you could choose from, and they changed the book to provider because they knew that the words are important, and they, it's one of those things that they do with words to, to manipulate people, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. So I don't like that word. I don't like it when my colleagues use that word, and but I don't want to be a, a you know, a a nanny all the time and correct them. But I, if I can politely do it, I want to use the word practitioner, which includes midwives, nurse practitioners, everybody. It, but provider, you know, the guy that comes and mows my lawn is the provider of lawn services. Yeah, I don't, that's too general. It's too non-specific and it's not professional. Okay. I am thus requesting a consult. Um, should the baby stay in a breech position? Okay. So I wrote her uh, back um, and I, I don't think I mentioned the meanness. Maybe I did. Let's see. Dear Zila, so, so appreciate your detailed history and I'm excited for your upcoming birth. First, most likely your baby will not remain breech and will turn back to head down and you can continue your current plan with your midwife. It's most important to say that to them. Telling someone that their baby's breech at 34 weeks and that starting to talk about all the problems that that can happen you know, it's, I guess it's how you say it. Maybe it's part of informed consent to talk about it, but the, you could talk about it and say it in such a positive way that it's so unlikely to stay that way. And if it does, we've got all kinds of things we could do, but that's not what she was told. Yeah. And when would you recommend kind of making that? Well, you could start, I mean, you could start the spinning baby stuff at any time, but I would not even be concerned about it until you reach 37 weeks. Yeah. All right. 37 weeks about... 96% of babies are head down. At 34 weeks, you know, there may be still 10 to 15, 20% of babies that are breech. And she has a good AFI. And she, has a, she has a normal good AFI, right? <laughs> so I said at 34 and five sevenths weeks, you can still help encourage the process of turning by following some of the recommendations on the Spinning Babies website and seeing a chiropractor skilled in pregnancy and Webster technique. Should your baby remain, oh, here we go. Should your baby remain breech at 37 weeks, I would be honored to see you in my in a consultation at my Calabasas office. At this meeting, we'll review your history, discuss the literature and options, including turning the baby or, or vaginal breech birth, perform an ultrasound, answer questions, and get better acquainted. To schedule, and I told her how to schedule. Mm -hmm. And so that's my response to her. Great. I love that you respond to all the letters. I respond to all the letters. I know. It's so great. But this is, this is the highlight of the dumbest Dr. Dogma episode so far, even though we've only had two. One, one of two. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You'll have to ride the short bus for the rest of That's life. terrible. Isn't that just awful? I'm just terrible. Yeah. Terrible. I, I couldn't believe it when she said that. So Zayla, I hope I get to meet you. Well, actually, I hope I don't get to meet you because that means that your baby is turned head down. And that you have a beautiful VBAC. Yes. And the VBAC is a non-issue. Yeah. Breach or head down, the VBAC is a non-issue. Success rate is going to be really high, and it's going to be higher if you stick with your midwife than if you end up having to go actually back to a hospital. Yep. Great. Okay. 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 Anything else you want to say? Well, I think we're out of time. I think we're out of time too. Right. <laughs> we we sure can talk. Glad you guys. We do. We don't even keep track of the time anymore. <laughs> we don't have a timer. I was going to, but it seems like you were. Yeah. Next time we should get. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to do that. I, I, that's what I thought. I think I think we've done this enough now. 
where we sort of can kind of tell when that's uh, kind of like we're winding down. Yeah, and we have a production team now. So if we're <laughs> too long, they'll edit us out. <laughs> yeah, so that's pretty exciting. So, uh, boy, it's really, it's, I, I love seeing you. I love the way we're, our new format is so that we can Good. just sit and chat whenever we want. We don't have to stick to a certain time where we're on video. Uh, I'm sure some people would prefer that we'd be on video. And maybe some of these, we, we are recording it on a video. And maybe I'll still put some of these things up on my Rumble page, Birthing Instincts at rumble.com. So you can go to rumble.com and, and check them out there. And you can find, uh, again, me at Birthing Instincts is my website, uh, www.birthinginstincts.com. And Bliss is your website is? Uh, birthingbliss.com. So have a great week. Have a great week. Until next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 